if I think elder abuse is a moral outrage. I think it's wrong. I think it's connected to ageism. I think it's, it's connected to policies that disregard older people. I think it is a matter of justice. We all have agency and we all can actually make a difference. Hello, I'm Peter Caldas, CEO of the American Society on Aging, and I welcome you to Bylines, ASA's newest podcast interviewing authors of articles from generations. Today, we'll be speaking with an author featured in our spring 2020 edition of Generations, which is on taking action against elder mistreatment. Author Kathy Greenlee is the former Assistant Secretary on Aging under President Obama, and is currently working with the state of Kansas on its COVID-19 response. Welcome to Bylines, Kathy. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you for your interest uh, in highlighting this article. And before we start, I'd just like to congratulate you on your new position. Uh, I wish you every success as you start this job in a very odd time right now for us. Well, thank you, Kathy. That's very kind of you. It is, it is an odd time, but I think uh, this current issue of generations is oddly timely in that we're dealing with uh, elder abuse and elder mistreatment in the news, and we're seeing it constantly. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the core of this article, which you entitle Our National Shame, Little to No Funding for Elder Abuse Prevention and Response. So let's talk a little bit about how elder abuse prevention is funded currently. I think the best way for me to kind of describe succinctly the funding is to use a metaphor and then come back to the specifics. Um, if you thought of like robust and sufficient funding as a big party tent, like the kind of tent you would rent if you were having a party in your yard or a wedding, uh, the essential part of the tent is the center pole uh, that holds everything else in place. And with regard to elder abuse funding, we have no, we have no center tent pole. There's not the frame or the infrastructure in the middle. Uh, and by that, I mean there's no dedicated federal funding to states to help support a state adult protective services program. It's completely absent. What we have instead are the surrounding supports. And that makes those surrounding ports really important because they're the only things that we have. Uh, so if you look at kind of like what's on the circumference, uh, elder abuse funding has received, um, or elder abuse as an issue has re received a lot of so support from the Department of Justice um, in, in different capacities. It was really the National Institute of Justice that first started to fund research on elder abuse prevalence and response. The Office of Victims of Crime currently uh, supports some elder abuse funding through their Victims of Crime Act. The Office of Violence Against Women uh, realizes that violence uh, against older people does occur and they can fund in those categories. So one of the first places to start to look for funding is at the Department of Justice. They've really been at it about the longest. The other essential partner, of course, is the Department of Health and Human Services. And when I describe the center tentpole, the dedicated funding, uh, that's just money the states would get just for this purpose. There is some federal money that flows to the states, and it's in the form of a block grant, the Social Services Block Grant. That is administered federally at the Administration for Children and Families. And basically, it's just what it describes. It's a block grant. So the, the feds send it to the states, and then the states argue among the stakeholders, how shall we spend this? 
And some states have chosen to spend part of that block grant to support adult protective services, but certainly not every state. So we have no uniformity. Uh, some states have kicked in their own uh, state general fund dollars to support the local programs. And finally, I would be remiss, of course, if I didn't mention the Older Americans Act, which has always provided a little bit of funding. It's smaller than these other sources, but the long-term care ombudsman, some of the elder abuse prevention efforts in the Older Americans Act have also been around for a long time. They're not very big and certainly nowhere where we, where we need to be in terms of comprehensive funding um, to make the whole system work. Kathy, in your article, you make a really nice comparison to how we fund child abuse, abuse prevention efforts. And I'm wondering if you could sort of draw on that comparison and talk about how we lack infrastructure around adult protective services. One of the things I say in the article, and I've said um, consistently in, in public remarks for several years, is that I think the public makes the mistake in assuming that child protective services and adult protective services are similar because they sound alike and they're nowhere similar. Uh, adult protective services are not child protective services just spelled with an A. And, and part of that significant difference is historic. Uh, in 1974, Congress passed a law called CAPTA, this is how you say the acronym, it's the Child Abuse, Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act and they funded it. And this law has been amended several times. And it is the, the complement that the federal government put in place to support the issue. And for the full complement, they provide direct support to states for a comprehensive child welfare system. Uh, the federal government requires states to comply by passing certain regulations and laws. They provide technical assistance, guidance, administration for children and families uh, through their child protective program has invested in research. We never passed anything and funded it for adults, and we still haven't, like we funded for children. And, and the funding that you see or the program that you see on the state level simply came a different pathway, and it was quite literally cobbled together, get together state by state uh, as they decided they really needed to step forward and put together a prevention program for adults. But they are nowhere similar and I just want to give props to the people who do the work in child abuse. I'm not saying that I think their funding, their funding is sufficient. I don't know. I don't do that work. But it certainly has all of the components that we are so envious of as we try to support uh, states as they investigate cases of abuse against adults of all ages. You know, I was surprised to read in your article, uh, being a, a creature of D.C., having spent time in the Obama administration as well, I was surprised to learn that Congress hadn't appropriated dollars to support the EJA. Is that right? Yeah, so the Elder Justice Act, uh, it took about 10 years for the advocates to get that law passed, and I was not part of that. I mean, when I first heard about the Elder Justice Act, it kind of cocked my head sideways. It's like, why is this so hard to fund? I mean, no one's in favor of elder abuse, but it's just that hard to get substantive legislation and appropriation through Congress. So the vehicle the advocates finally kind of latched onto was the Affordable Care Act. And so the Elder Justice Act passed about a decade ago. Uh, the fact that it used the Affordable Care Act as a vehicle, vehicle became its own um, wrinkle, in a sense, because many people didn't support the Affordable Care Act. But here's the Elder Justice Act standing in the middle of that law with a designation of authorizing 
uh, language up to $777 million. It says, we, Congress, think we could spend $777 million. And after that passed, people called me looking for their money. They go, oh, no, there's a big difference between approving an amount. It's like, I would like to budget this amount and having the money. Uh, Congress never appropriated the dollars for the Elder Justice Act. And if you look at the law, it has the components that we're missing. It is not exactly what the Child Protective Services Act is, but it's a full complement of solutions and remedies in a similar fashion and dedicated funding. And it, it still doesn't, it's still not funded, uh, with, with minor ex- exception. It's still not funded. Um, and it's hard. I mean, when, when stakeholders work really hard for a long time to get the law passed, you really want to spend at least a weekend celebrating, but you have to stay at the task, and it's hard to sustain that energy because if you don't fund the law right after it's passed, then it gets left behind and other good ideas and crisis, like the one we're in, and it intervenes, uh, and it's hard to stay at the task of getting funding. It's very hard to maintain attention. Kathy, you don't write about this in the article, but I'm wondering in this time of COVID, where so much funding has already been allocated to support the infrastructure around aging, do you think there's an opportunity for the EJA to be uh, appropriated now, be funded now? Interesting question. I I think I agree with the premise of your question, that we certainly are, uh, at least uh, it seems in in Congress, uh, willing to pass legislation with enormous price tags. So the, the price of funding this will look minor in comparison. But it has always looked minor in comparison to some of these larger programs. Uh, I see elder abuse, and this is really a reflection of uh, both my uh, training as a lawyer and my career really working in uh, the healthcare setting. I see public health as both a law enforcement issue and as a healthcare issue. And I would like to see us move forward and talk about better funding for like long-term care uh, and neglect and services which have a huge impact on uh, the health and livelihood of older people. So I think there will be stakeholders who should ask the same questions, like, our numbers look small now, should we run forward? But we won't be the only ones uh, doing that calculus. Uh, We don't have a long-term care benefit in this country, and we need one. Uh, That would help this issue. Well, I want to touch on that a little bit, actually, about advocacy. How how do you think ASA's membership uh, can help in trying to remedy the situation? So, you know, one of the first major speeches I gave on this topic was at an ASA conference in DC, and I spent the last five minutes talking about elder abuse. I had failed to warn the people at their little booth downstairs, and I raised this issue, and then the people in the booth were flooded, uh, were talking about this. One of the beauties of ASA is how multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary it is, I have with people from so many diverse backgrounds. Um, that is the strength, and that kind of strength could really help uh, address the, the issue and the problems. With regard to the federal conversation, it would be helpful if we all agreed to use a similar message when talking about our need to attend to funding. And I believe a strong message is to say, this is a system we never built. We never built federal support for adult protective programs at the state level. We never built it. It's very easy for advocates to instead say, this is underfunded. That is completely true. 
But underfunding is not a winning argument in front of a legislative body because we're simply crowded out by everybody else who's underfunded. And there's no way to distinguish yourself in a long line that includes all the Medicaid providers in the country. So we have to have a different approach and really break through and, and, and send the message that we, we're not underfunded, it's not created. And we need to create it and fund it both. And, and I think to the degree that anybody who's a member of ASA, who's part of a national association, uh, can help that association lift this as an issue. The other thing I think ASA members can do is to put a face on this issue locally. No member of Congress will fund this if they don't know what's happening at home. So whether it's a senator or a member of Congress, invite them to a location at home and talk about the issue. And then champions like me or Assistant Secretary Robertson can show up and validate what members have been told by their own constituents, and that's effective. But if you expect federal officials to raise the issue by themselves initially, that won't be effective. Um, advocates need to do some education at home and show people what's actually happening. Unmask this particular problem. You know, you, you mentioned that talking about underfunding is not the most compelling message because it gets crowded out. I'm wondering if maybe we don't stick to a social justice kind of argument, a little bit like you do in your article about why you consider elder abuse prevention to be a matter of elder justice. Could you talk about your thinking there? Yeah, I mean, you know, over the years as I've worked on this, I kept myself in my own framing and, and communications searching for bigger language. It's like, how do I really describe how big this problem is just in terms of the, the impact and, 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 and the burden I feel in just carrying it, I guess. And uh, I finally have concluded for myself, I think elder abuse is a moral outrage. I think it's wrong. Uh, I think it's connected to ageism. I think it's, it's connected to policies that disregard uh, older people. Uh, I think it is a matter of justice, and I understand uh, kind of the, the background and sort of the framing around justice as an issue. I also think there are some limitations uh, with regard to justice, and that I see this as a healthcare failure as well. And so long as when we talk about health equity and health justice as a part of justice, I think those la that language can be broad enough. But uh, there are healthcare failings here. There are people. Uh, certainly, if you look at people who are neglected either by others or have no one to care for them, who could improve their life uh, and their health if, if they had adequate health care, access to health care. So it, I do think it's a matter um, of fundamental justice. And, and, and the framing and the discussion of elder abuse also kind of reveals our very easy ability to talk about older people as other people and not our future selves. This is really a matter for all of us as we age, that we have the right to autonomy and dignity, health, safety, those things are personal rights for all of us that we need to really, really, really move forward together and advocate for. Interesting in your article, you talk about this population as being perhaps the greatest source of advocacy and source of advocates for this movement. Can you talk a little bit about why you think that? So I started uh, doing work in a similar area uh, in the domestic violence field. That's my background. I worked at a domestic violence shelter, both as a volunteer and staff, in the 80s. 
And I would point to both the domestic violence movements and the movements to deal with sexual assault as good examples that those that work, all of that work is led by and informed by people who are victims and survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and rape. That work would not be what it is without those voices. They're the, the leaders. Um, those of us who have not had those experiences must listen to the leadership of the victims and survivors. In the field of elder abuse, it's completely different. This work is being led by many of us who consider ourselves allies and champions. I'm not a victim of elder abuse. You know, and what's, what's the biggest kind of missing, in addition to like the void of funding, is the real need to connect directly with older people themselves and figure out how to support them, encourage them, and have them come forward to talk about this issue. It is much harder for lawmakers to turn away if someone is talking about their needs as an individual in their community. I think um, caring and committed family members can be a proxy. I think other officials can be proxy, but we are all proxy for older adults who are abused. And our language reflects that we still think too often of victims and not enough of survivors. And part of that, I think, rests on the fact that we're not including older people in this work. And it's not that we don't want to. I don't think any of us have figured out really how. And it uh, should be at the top of everyone's to-do list. It's like, how do, we, how do we get this leadership where we need for it to be? Uh, it's the most compelling aspect of the work that's missing. Well, Kathy, speaking of work, I understand you recently took on uh, some new responsibilities. I was wondering if you could share that with us. So it's uh, still amazing to me that um, I'm not in Washington. I've been gone for uh, almost four years now this summer. I have continued to work and write and travel when I could travel and talk about elder abuse. Uh, and a couple of, well, I guess it was six or six weeks or so, middle of April, as I was watching the news about uh, COVID-19 and the deaths in nursing home, really, I, I was just beside myself. Um, I quite literally stomped around my living room one night in tears saying, you know, I used to have these big deal jobs. I was the assistant secretary. I was a secretary of aging in Kansas. I had been working with a consulting firm, and I called and quit uh, and called the governor of Kansas, who I've known for a long time, and said, I want to help. Uh, I want to use the skills and the resources, my prior experience, to help attend to this crisis that we have that we're, that's so consuming that we're all witnessing uh, in, in the nation's nursing homes. So I'm uh, working uh, half-time as the LTSS COVID-19 liaison for the state of Kansas. I have a contract with my former agency, and I will do that for the foreseeable future. I think uh, at the end of the year, may have some other opportunities, but for now, I'm paying attention. I mean, this is a, it's an international issue. Those of us uh, watching what's happening with nursing home, nursing home deaths are seeing as the, this is the national story and tragedy that it is. It's happening here in Kansas. We don't have as many people here. And it's also happen happening in my hometown. Uh, so kind of from top to bottom, um, this, this really wears on me. And I can't sit it out. I think those of us in the field of aging must pay attention to several issues in the coronavirus crisis that will guide our work. I think this applies to all of ASA's work, uh, what's happening with uh, vulnerable older people in nursing home settings what's happening with the disparate impact on people of color. These issues have to be front and center as we all kind of change and shape and morph a bit, I think, what our policy agendas are and where we spend our time and energy 
uh, these next several years. So uh, I will try to help. I, I don't want to be on the sidelines for this. Kathy, thank you for reminding all of us that we all have agency and that we all can actually make a difference. Uh, you're inspiring, and I want to thank you today uh, for your conversation and, and having this chat with me about your article in Generations. But more, more importantly, you've been actively engaged with ASA throughout the years. So thank you so much, and I'm delighted that you're now serving on our Generations Editorial Advisory Board. So thank you. Thank you very much for your contributions, and I hope you continue to contribute as we move forward. Thank you, Peter. I'm looking forward to uh, having even this ongoing relationship in a new way with Generations. I was talking to um, the two Allisons at ASA who, who um, edit those publications for you. I said, you know, I've given a speech about on every topic in aging. So the breadth of what I've seen, I uh, hope, can be helpful to Generations as we tackle the issues that we need to really uh, highlight and educate the field about in the future. Great. And thank you to the ASA members for listening. And please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast online or through your app store to hear the next episode of Bylines. Thank you very much.